He knew who he was. He knew where he was coming from. He knew what he wanted to do in life. This is what he wanted to be, a public interest physician, a physician that tried to make workplace safer, medicine safer, medical practice safer, strong, fair regulation by the FDA. And he knew right off that that was going to be what he was going to do the rest of his life. And he proved it. That, of course, is Ralph talking about his longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Sid Wolf, whose life we celebrate today because there's a good chance he saved your life or the life of someone you know. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrove, and along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Sad day. And, of course, we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. This is a truly sad day for us at the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Dr. Sidney Wolf, one of the founders of Public Citizen and the director of the Health Research Group for over 50 years, passed away this week at age 86. In 1971, Sid was working at the National Institutes of Health when he got a tip that federal regulators were refusing to recall contaminated IV fluids that came from Abbott Laboratories. Hundreds of people were getting sick as a result, and a number of them died. Who did Sid call? Ralph Nader. Sid and Ralph teamed up to challenge the FDA and got enough press that a few days later, these dangerous IV fluids were taken off the market. And thus began a relationship that led to the founding of the health research group at Public Citizen that over its storied history has gotten over two dozen dangerous drugs off the market and has been the leading watchdog of defective and hazardous medical devices and been the bane of incompetent doctors. And I'm just scratching the surface here, folks. Dr. Sidney Wolf was a true American hero who saved countless lives over the course of his unique career. We'll go into a lot more detail in this episode about what he accomplished not only from Ralph, but others who worked with him and knew him as the passionate, forceful, tireless champion that he was. As always, somewhere along the line, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. So without further ado, let us pay tribute to the incomparable Dr. Sidney Wolf. And we're going to start with one of the people who marched shoulder to shoulder with Sid for over 50 years. That's you, Ralph. Well, for over 50 years, Dr. Sidney Wolf, who directed Public Citizens Health Research Group, has been what I would call the doctor's doctor, stressing the prevention of trauma and sickness, stressing accountability for gouging and unsafe practices by the drug companies, and pushing for effective regulation by the Food and Drug Administration and the Occupational Safety and Health Agency. He produced many regular newsletters, books on worst pills, best pills, informed millions of people with life-saving information. This is information the patient could use, being told to take a drug, to check in the book, whether it was safe and effective, or whether it was ineffective, or whether it was unsafe and shouldn't be taken at all. He pressed successfully with regulatory petitions, at the FDA and OSHA, and litigation for removal of hundreds of unsafe and or ineffective drugs from the marketplace. And he was as indefatigable and incorruptible a super productive civic leader as there has been in our country. He reached millions of people because he was a great communicator on the nightly television news, national radio, and the super popular Phil Donahue show. And he would always name names, the names of bad drugs, unsafe medical devices, the names of 
corrupt corporations, even of sellout regulators in the FDA. He could do that because he was a stickler for accuracy and precision and scientific data. Millions of people are benefiting from his work. He's been at since 1971 and will continue his legacy far into the future. But there won't be another Dr. Sid Wolf for a while, unfortunately. He really was one of a kind. And we're going to find out more about his life in this program. Thank you, Ralph. Now we turn to Dr. Steffi Woolhandler and Dr. David Himmelstein. David? Dr. Steffi Woolhandler and Dr. David Himmelstein are co-founders of the Physicians for National Health Program, which is a nonprofit research and education organization that advocates for single-payer national health insurance. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Steffi Woolhandler and Dr. David Himmelstein. Thanks for having us. Yes, our pleasure. Welcome indeed. Well, we've known each other for a long time, Steffi and David, and you've worked with Sid for many years. And we are devoting this hour, listeners, to a review of the life of the great Sidney Wolf, MD. He always wanted to be called Sid, very informal. But he's the doctor's doctor in my book. He was emphasizing prevention of trauma and injury. And he watchdogged the medical profession, the FDA, the drug industry, the medical device industry, and with his health research group of public citizens was a tremendous force for saving lives, injuries around the country and also in other countries around the world as a result. Can you tell us about your work with Sidney and what he meant to you over the years, Stephanie? Yeah, well, Sid taught me a lot of what I know about drug safety. As an internal medicine specialist, my job is often prescribing drugs and they can certainly help. But drugs are substances that change the way your body works. So anything that can help can also harm. And Sid was insistent that those who sell drugs and profit from drugs have to prove that the drug is actually safe, that the harms do not outweigh the benefits. And for many, many drugs on the market in the United States, Sid and others found out that the harms were much greater than the benefits. In identifying literally dozens of drugs that were unsafe, that should not be used, Sid has saved hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives of Americans who you know, were threatened by unsafe drugs. He's also really created the field of drug safety within uh, the academic medical community. David and I are also longtime med school professors and academics, and it would be hard to overstate his tremendous stature within the medical community as a kind of watchdog and touchstone about how you think about drug safety and assuring that the benefits of the drugs we prescribe as doctors are going to outweigh the harms to our patients. And David, you know, he brought both of you to my attention when you started writing those major articles in the New England Journal of Medicine about the waste and corruption and denial of benefits in the current so-called industrial health care system and all the benefits of single-payer. You brought information in about single-payer in Canada, free choice of doctor and hospital, no long inscrutable bills and billing fraud. And you started the intellectual empirical research for single-payer. And then 
You went up to Congress, you got some legislation in, testified, and he was very proud of you. And he would call me up when he got the New England Journal of Medicine articles and tell me about them. David, give me your view on how rigorous Sid was. He couldn't afford to make any mistakes because the drug company lobbyists and propaganda machine would have descended on him and his associates to try to discredit him. Give us an idea of how his standards were for the charges that he made against the drug companies and the medical device companies. Well, Sid was meticulous about the truth. Sid insisted that you couldn't overstate what you didn't know, that the most important responsibility of doctors was to to be honest with the patients, with the public, with the government about what we know and what we don't know. And often what we don't know is critically important. He never stretched the truth. That was important not just because others were watching and trying to find flaw in what he did, but it was inherent in Sid's character that he cared about telling the truth and about doing what was right. And I I would say, in addition to the drug work that Steffi talked about, Sid taught me how you advocate for single payer and how how you work on social change in our tangled government structures. We spent a year on sabbatical in Washington, and I actually worked with Sid full-time for that year back 30-some years ago. And he really taught me how government works and how you work within government and taught me how to focus single-payer work in an effective way. And we went during that year many times to Congress together to meet with Henry Waxman at that time, the chair of the Health Subcommittee in House of Representatives and others. And Sid was really the preeminent not just scholar of drug safety and protection of what should be prioritized in healthcare, but also about how you move the country on these issues, not just as an academic exercise, but as a real world piece of work. Well, speaking of moving the country, he was a tremendous communicator. He was on the Phil Donahue show, which had a 10 million audience at that time, very powerful show. And he would highlight his findings, especially the books that were called Worst Pills, Best Pills, which was a series of reports on brand name drugs, all of which were approved by the FDA, but some of them for the same ailment producing bad side effects, gastrointestinal bleeding, increased dizziness, for example, and others for the same ailment not producing. And that's why he came up with this title, Worst Pills, Best Pills. And he'd go through on the Donahue show with Phil leading him, one major drug after another, there would be gasps in the audience, like saying, I'm taking this drug and I have bleeding and I don't have to take it. I could take another drug that's approved by the FDA that doesn't have that consequence. And in one show, Stephanie David, 500,000 copies were sold all over the country. People rushed to get this book, Worst Pills, Best Pills. They couldn't get that kind of information from most of their physicians. The FDA was not putting out this kind of information. It was considered too controversial. Of course, it would produce an indictment of the FDA for not warning people in the first place. Well, he was a great communicator. He was on NBC, ABC, 
CBS all the time, NPR, PBS, and he was a real opponent of the commercialization of medicine and the commercialization of medical schools. Can you talk about that? Well, that was really important. And I must say, when I returned to Harvard after the year in Washington with Sid, I brought that book back with me and, and insisted that the residents who I, I supervised actually pay attention to Sid's evaluation of drugs because the FDA's evaluation wasn't there. And you're right about his warnings about the commercialization of medicine and corporate malfeasance in all branches of healthcare. And that was part of why he embraced single-payer health reform as an essential part of his agenda as well as ours. I mean, Sid was a great communicator in another sense, too. Like, even though he had a very radical critique of corporate power and a radical critique of the extent of corruption within government and within the medical community, he was also able to identify and persuade allies in all sorts of places. So some of them were folks who worked in government who actually cared about good public policy. Some of them were academics all over the country who became his friends and worked with him on various projects. Some of them were folks in the media who actually came to believe in the importance of the media in exposing corruption and exposing dangers to the American people. And part of that was he was so careful with facts and accuracy that you could really, if Sid said something, you could trust it. And it was very, very persuasive. And his ability to persuade people is is part of how he was so effective in his work. Well, he was a great networker. You know, he he networked with people of all ages. He took a particular interest with young people. He'd have medical students as interns at the health research group, and he'd speak at medical schools. Can you talk about his work with young people at all? David or Stephanie? Well, I can certainly worked with both of my daughters when they were teenagers. They came and lived with him. And Suzanne, Katie worked on your presidential campaign. That's my older daughter, Sid, Ralph. And uh, Gracie, my younger daughter, worked with Rob Weissman on consumer product safety. But they were just teenagers. And now they're both physicians and social justice researchers in the field of medical care. So he certainly inspired them by showing the importance of good research, of good accuracy, and that it was possible to live as a progressive person within a profession and use your professional skills to implement social change. But I think he had that effect on dozens and dozens of students and young researchers and doctors in training that I saw, that I know who worked with him at at least one point in their lives. Yeah, I have no idea who all of the people were, but as time went by in conversation with Sid and with others, it would pop up, oh yeah, before he went to medical school, he worked as an intern at Public Citizen, Josh Sharfstein, who was the second in command at the FDA later on and is now the associate dean of the public health school at Johns Hopkins. Josh, before he went to medical school, was a protege of SIDS. And that sort of thing came out routinely about other people who went on to distinguished or maybe not highly recognized, but critically important careers and activities. Well, you know, you have a master's in public health, Stephanie, and Sid was quite critical of state departments of public health as being too cowardly. 
he raised the issue of how under-budgeted they were, how unprepared. Of course, we, we learned about that when the COVID-19 virus struck in 2020, how unprepared we were not only at the national level under Trump, but at the state level. These departments of public health are besieged by corporate lobbyists, and they don't have the political support by governors for most cases, some exceptions. And that was part of his range. He had tremendous range. He even published several times a directory of physicians who had been disciplined by their state supervisory boards, either for incompetence or for economic shenanigans, and printed their names. That's another example of his accuracy. You have to be extremely accurate when you're talking about brand name drugs selling billions of dollars a year and doctors who are not working properly for their patients. Do you see a a situation coming in the future where the medical schools producing more young Sid Wolfs? We're talking listeners in the memory of Dr. Sidney Wolf, who passed away on January 1st at the age of 86 and left in his wake a tremendous legacy of written materials, newsletters, reports, congressional testimony, books, all to help people. They were books you could use if you were a diabetic. He had a book on what you can do to do it without having bad side effects. Can we look forward to some medical well, schools turning out more young Sydney Wolfs? You've taught at medical schools. You know the tenor and the temperature there. Well, certainly I see a tremendous, a large number of medical students are interested in social justice right now. I think they often have trouble figuring out how they can build a career that advances social justice. And I wish more of them had a chance to meet Sid Wolf. Unfortunately, none of them will going forward. But to see that you can use your medical skills, you can use your medical knowledge, you can use the attention to detail that medical school teaches you to advance the social justice agenda. So to make sure that people can have access to medications and medical care, that the medical care and medications they get are as safe as possible, that their doctors and their institutions are not being corrupted by corporate profit-seeking. He demonstrated a way that people can work within the medical field and medical profession to advance a social justice agenda. And certainly he's influenced people in the past and hopefully going forward, many more people can learn to use his ideas and methods for advancing social justice. And he demonstrated he could live a very balanced life as well. He and Ava had four daughters, and he would take vacations. He was a runner. Even at his advanced age, he'd win contests in terms of running. And he was a very fine pianist. And so he showed that you could work 55 hours a week for social justice and still have a balanced life. I have never met anybody more incorruptible. I mean, there would be New York Stock Exchange brokers calling him about what he knows about drugs to see whether it would affect the stock valuation of a company that they were investing in. And I once told him, Sid, you get calls from these stock analysts. There isn't anybody that's called you twice, right? (laughs) Same person. (laughs) Yeah, they never called Sid twice. He turned them off with a very stern lecture never to call again. He was such a honest, 
high character, compassionate personality. He would respond to all kinds of people, calling him relatives, friends, friends of friends with ailments, and he would calmly question them, give them advice, refer them to competent specialists, all pro bono, of course. That was one of his side hobbies, reaching out to people and showing that he wasn't just a tough analyst and scientific researcher, that he had a real heart. Well, thank you both for your heartfelt comments and memories of Dr. Sidney Wolf. Before we close, is there anything you'd like to say that we didn't stimulate you in saying? Well, we miss Sid, but the only thing that will miss Sid more than us is the rest of the world. Well said. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. David Himmelstein and Dr. Steffi Woolhandler. We hope that you will be part of extending his legacy going into the next few years. Would be our highest aspiration. Up next, we'll welcome Robert Weissman, the president of Public Citizen. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, January 5, 2024. I'm Russell Mokhyber. On the afternoon of May 8, 2023, Cass Grusbeck, age 20, was trying to clear an obstruction on an overhead package conveyor at an Amazon distribution center in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was en route to the jam in an elevated lift when his head collided with the conveyor and became trapped by the machinery. That's according to a September 18th safety order. He died of blunt force injuries. After an 11-week investigation, Indiana safety officials found that Amazon failed to ensure a workplace, quote, free from recognized hazards that were causing or likely to cause death, and issued a serious safety citation. That's going to report in the Washington Post. The penalty? A $7,000 fine, the maximum allowed in Indiana. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokad. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Ralph, and the rest of the team, as we continue our celebration of the life and career of Dr. Sidney Wolf. David? Robert Weissman is the president of Public Citizen, where he spearheads the effort to loosen the chokehold corporations and the wealthy have over our democracy. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Robert Weissman. Great to be with you. Very sad time, Robert. And I was reading what you put on Public Citizen's website, citizen.org, and you said about Sid that he invented a new approach of research-based advocacy to get dangerous drugs and devices off the market, win new protections for worker health and safety, address doctor misconduct, challenge the Food and Drug Administration to do its job, and hold pharmaceutical companies accountable. Sid was brilliant. He won a MacArthur Genius Grant and fearless in his advocacy. But what was most singular about him professionally was his passion for advancing health justice. There was a distinctive fierceness and fury to his work. Everyone who knew and or even encountered Sid, allies and adversaries alike, experienced his intensity, end quote. He was fierce, but he rarely raised his voice. And he was under full control of his rational arguments, but his tone was one of great urgency, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I hope everybody reading that, as you're reading it, Ralph, you know, appreciates that I'm talking about his passion around 
issues of injustice, right and wrong, life and death. As a human being, as I also described, and as you know, it was true for you as well, he was a dear friend and very gentle and soft and funny and, you know, with widely diverse interests. And also for many people who knew him, especially here at Public Citizen, he was a, a doctor. So some of the commentary about him over the years was he didn't maintain a practice of treating patients, which was true as far as it went. But if you called Sid and said, I have a problem, he would attend to you and all of the sharp edges dropped away. And he was the, the kindest doctor with a, you know, a bedside manner from 100 years ago and would spend so much time with folks here at Public Citizen and in his social network and really made fundamental differences in people's lives in this organization and among our friends and networks as a doctor in a way that you really can't get from any doctor you might go to in a practice. Yeah, it really was amazing. It never turned a request down. You'd go to him and you'd say, look, this person is really ill and the person's pretty well known in the field and is doing great work for humanity. He said, that doesn't matter to me whether he's doing great work for humanity or whether he's well known or not. What only matters is that the person's a human being. That's something he was very insistent on. Tell us about the health research group's health letter, its publications, especially the outrage of the month that Sid devised. You know, among the just remarkable things about Sid is he did invent this whole new way of doing advocacy. And and he understood, you know, very much as he learned along with you, Ralph, that it wasn't just about marshalling the facts, that you had to both mobilize people, but also in the consumer health space, educate people. And so he was able to not just do this original research on drug safety, but find ways to communicate to people in clear and understandable ways, information that they could act on in their day-to-day -day lives. So he, with colleagues, published uh, first a, a large book called Worst Pills, Best Pills, which was a compendium of drugs on the market and telling you which ones were safe or which ones you should exercise caution about and which ones you should avoid. It was just an invaluable tool over time, the multiple editions of that book sold two and a half million copies, promoted in, in significant part by Sid's appearances on Bill Donahue's show, where he was able to represent what we're discussing, his ability to communicate complicated information in ways that were really understandable and clear and that people could trust. And so people saw Sid on Donahue's show, trusted him, and then bought this a low price book that was really impactful in their lives. He created a newsletter along with that, Worst Pills, Best Pills newsletter, which at its peak had 150,000 circulation. He published a monthly health letter, just looking at public health issues. And as you said, that included a monthly outrage of the month. Outrage may have been Sid's catchphrase because he saw so much outrageous in the health field precisely because he knew that things were being put on the market that shouldn't be, or services were being withheld from people that shouldn't be, not because of any lack of information, but because of the improper influence and political power and economic power of big pharma and the for-profit health insurance industry. And he was outraged about that because he understood it rightfully as a matter of life and death, to bring it full circle to what you're saying, Ralph life and death for real human beings, people he may not know, 
but real human beings were going to be affected by this. And he found that as outrageous as if it were affecting someone he did know. Well, he put out two bestsellers called Drugs That Don't Work and then Over-the-Counter Drugs That Don't Work. And within 15 years, hundreds of these drugs were taken off the market because they were ineffective and or unsafe, which was against federal law. But until the people found out about this by brand name or whatever, the FDA just sat and did nothing. So that's another consequence of his advocacy. Tell us a story that Sid always liked to tell about our first venture together with the Abbott Labs contaminated intravenous fluids. Well, I should really be asking you, but as I understand the story, Sid got a tip that Abbott Labs was selling intravenous fluid around the country that was impure and in killing people. The FDA knew about it, but made a decision that it couldn't remove it from the market because intravenous fluids are so important. So with you, he wrote a letter to the FDA, I think at your suggestion, saying, hey, this is happening. Released that letter to the press. It became big news. I've got copies of the original stories that came out in response to that letter. And then within a few days, the product had been removed from the market. That might've been a false indicator of the success that was to come. I mean, it's pretty good. You write a letter, you get the product removed, you save hundreds of lives. You're pretty inspired to go forward. As Sid really knew at the time, and as he would discover through 50 years of work, wasn't usually that fast, but he had a lot of success building on that model over the many decades to come. Well, when he graduated from Case Western Reserve Medical School, he went to work at the National Institutes of Health in the area of alcoholism, and he was very highly regarded as a scientist there. He had already gotten a chemical engineering degree from Cornell. So he would often call me up and I would say, what about this drug or what about this device? And if there wasn't any evidence, he would say, there's no data. There's no clinical data. So he wasn't knee-jerk at all. It was all what the data was, what the studies were in the medical journals and other professional scientific outlets. And he would read all these journal articles and keep up to date. And his desk was piled with materials. And he loved his work. I think that he had that emotional intelligence that went with his cognitive intelligence, which makes all the difference, Robert, in terms of whether someone just knows something and bewails it, or someone just knows something and connects it to action that saves people's lives, prevents injuries. On your narrative on the website for Public Citizen, listeners, you can get the whole description of Sid's career and the work he did with his colleagues at Public Citizen by going to citizen.org. But you point out some of his and his colleagues' accomplishments. One was he forced 28 dangerous medications off the market, limiting the use of 10 more and adding strong warnings to dozens of others. These are medications taken by millions of people. Millions of people today are living or are not as sick because of the work of the health research group led by Dr. Sidney Wolf. He pushed the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to set more than a dozen worker protective health standards. He was particularly hard on silica and the horrible effects on people, workers' respiratory systems. He testified for hundreds of FDA advisory committees urging against approval by the FDA of dangerous drugs and medical devices. 
or for limited use or strong warning labels of others. And it just goes on and on. You went after red dye number two in your food supply because of its connection to cancer. He helped children survive Ray's syndrome by putting a warning on an aspirin bottle. He won access by the public, citizens, to safety and efficacy information for products being considered for approval by the FDA. And he was very early in condemning these drug company marketing of dangerous opiates, which last year took over 120,000 American lives. So there were a lot of warnings he put out, and nothing was done for years and years, which would just fuel his indignation. What do you see for the future of the health research group, Rob, since you're president of Public Citizen? Well, you know, as we're we're mourning him and spending a lot of time inside the organization remembering him and, and grieving, I think we're also trying to not just appreciate him, but learn from and be inspired by by that example, the his humanity and his passion and the ways that, you know, the specific kinds of advocacy approaches that he invented, but also the spirit of being constantly creative in that way. And the only, of course, the only true way to honor him is to lean into the work, to continue doing it. You know, as you know, Sid was 86 before he got the brain tumor, he had no intention of slowing down. He was confident that he had another 10 years of work left to do for him. Not that he thought it was going to be done in 10 years, but he was planning on continuing the work. So we're doubly duty bound to do that, exactly that and keep trying to carry forward that, that mission in the areas that he was working on and in areas related. And as you know, as you're alluding to, Ralph, he was really deep in what he was doing, but the breadth of topics that he that he took on, it's really hard to wrap your head around. Who's everything from that we besides what we've already talked about, everything from mental health care and county jails to tobacco and on and on. So there there's a lot more for us to do and we intend to do it. And he never got jaded. He was as indignant at 80 years of age as he was at 30 years. He never got jaded in confronting injustice. A lot of people get tired. They get burnt out. He had that inner energy because of his authenticity. And we're going to miss him terribly. Thank you very much, Robert Weissman. Thanks, Ralph. It's an honor to be with you to talk about a great man. We've been speaking with Robert Weissman. We have a link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Stand up, stand up. Our final guest today is Dr. Peter Lurie. David? Dr. Peter Lurie is president and executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest. Dr. Lurie previously worked with the Food and Drug Administration and Public Citizens Health Research Group, where he co-authored their Worst Pills, Best Pills Consumer Guide to Medications. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Dr. Peter Lurie. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Peter. Before we get into the Food and Drug Administration and the work that Sid, you and others did on that agency before you became an associate commissioner of it, tell us a bit about your experience working with Sid. Well, I got to say that Sid is a person who changed the direction of my life. Without question, I first met him when I was a medical student. I applied for a job. I'd gotten thoroughly fed up with medical school and how irrelevant what they were teaching us appeared to be. And went down to Washington and interviewed with Sid. 
hired me on the spot and I took a year with him and it absolutely changed my life. That was in 1984 and I worked on and off with him for a 25 year period after that. You know, Sid, is, you know, you'll get this from lots of people, but, you know, he's a one of a kind person and that is just irrefutable. He created an entire new approach to advocacy in the medical world that simply did not exist before. Yes, there were some people who had done work on the side advocating for the public health, but I don't know any physician who took it on full time in the way that Sid did. And in so doing, he created a model for a small number of privileged people like myself to follow. Most people don't have the time or be set up in such a way that they can do it, but Sid created it out of nothing. Public interest lawyers existed, yes, for years, but public interest doctors were unheard of. He was the first, and it'll be impossible to replace him. Well, one of the areas he concentrated on was try to get the Food and Drug Administration to be a real enforcement agency and not a toady or a procrastinator on behalf of the swarming drug industry lobbyists that worked the agency over. Could you tell us what the approach that you all took to the Food and Drug Administration? What were some of the problems that you had to deal with? And he was particularly upset when the Congress established this fee system where they required the drug companies to fund the regulatory work of the Food and Drug Administration. He felt that was an inducement to conflicts of interest and corruption. So could you give us a review of what you all were working on with the FDA? Well, let me just say that to return to the previous theme for a moment while answering this question, Sid was a pioneer in the methods for influencing the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, he was one of the first people to take advantage of the public session in a advisory committee meetings where you can show up as an ordinary member of the public and have your say. He was one of the first people to take advantage of the citizen petition process to put issues before the agency in a way that they had to respond to. And when the agency either didn't respond to us or took too long to do so, or sometimes responded in a way that we didn't like, then he was one of the first people to turn to the courts and to public citizens' internal litigators to be able to actually really hold the agency's feet to the fire. So he used these mechanisms that were there and that are now commonplace in advocacy, including in the medical setting, for the very first time. And he showed all of us how to harness those tools. And when he did that, it was always based on science and it was always based on data. Very few people would show up in a public session or write a petition that was more technically able, more technically precise, more correct, frankly, than Sid. Plenty of people are using those petitions now, but the public citizen ones were ones that always made the agency pay attention. And I can tell you this from working on the inside. Even when they weren't welcomed, people knew that he was onto at least something. Uh, it was always, here's a person with credibility, with sincerity, who does not have a conflict of interest, who has put a lot of time into thinking about this, who has combed through the medical journals in order to know the issue well, and he will have put it together on a piece of paper right for you. And with that, he drove the agenda for the agency. Well, one of Sid's regrets was that he was raising the alarm about antimicrobial resistance because of the overuse by doctors and hospitals of antibiotics. And he took the available data over 40 years ago, was available. Every year, about 100,000 people would die because the antibiotics they took didn't work because of the microbes mutating from the overuse. 
of these antibiotics. And you worked on this at the FDA when you were Associate Commissioner for Public Health Strategy. Give us a little capsule history of this constant struggle to control the use of antibiotics and why it is mostly not succeeded. Yeah, well, you know, I can remember working with Sid on that in 84 or 85. He was invited to testify before some congressional committee and put together this testimony. He had some kind of insider, you know, God, I don't know where, but he had some person who every year would send us these enormous volumes. I mean, they were maybe three inches thick, each of them, which had detailed information about prescribing. You had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get hold of these. And we public citizen clearly couldn't do that. But he had somebody who sent it to him. And every year it would come. And there'd be this moment where it would come in the door and everybody knew that the Xerox machines had to be, you know, set free because it all had to be copied for the year. And he would go through this and, and somebody would copy it. And then he'd come through this very dense data. And he used that for the testimony. And it was very effective. I remember he pulled out the number of antibiotics that were said to be being prescribed for the cold, then that correct number is zero. But of course, that wasn't the number that appeared in the database at all. There were hundreds of thousands of such prescriptions. And he had a few other examples. And they were just very simple examples of clearly irrational behavior that the doctors were engaging in. And that was, I don't know if it was the first work he did on it, but that's the part that I did with him. The other part of it was always the animal side. And there... We were able to show when I was at FDA that the majority of, of antibiotic use actually is in animals, not in humans, because they're fed you know, in vast numbers on feedlots. And at the time that I was at FDA, we did take some action that has actually reduced the use in, in, in that way. But overall, Ralph, you're absolutely right. This remains you know, a critical problem going forward. There are you know, estimates of millions of people dying as a consequence of this in, in the not so distant future. But it's a very difficult problem in that the causes are multiple and the problems are diverse, and it's been very hard to get a proper handle on it. So he was absolutely well, right. He wanted to educate patients about antibiotics. Could you tell our listeners what the proper approach of a patient should be when the patient has a cold, mostly viral? Explain what they should be alert to if yeah. a doctor tries to automatically prescribe an antibiotic to make the patient feel good. Right. So, you know, that's actually something Sid did on a, in a general level was that he would always try to empower people and partly through our book and newsletter, Worst Pills, Best Pills, to have the right questions to have to ask doctors. And the Worst Pills, Best Pills even had a section, as I remember it, you know, 10 questions to ask your doctor. You know, whenever somebody prescribes you an antibiotic, a perfectly good question to the doctor is, do you really need to do that, doc? That's a fair question, because a lot of the time they're not so sure themselves. A lot of the time they've talked themselves into it. A lot of the time they're doing it because they're afraid of what might happen if they don't prescribe. And it's a kind of insurance for the doctors themselves. And so if you push them even a little, that might be enough for the doctor to change their mind and take an appropriate antibiotic-free approach, which is the one that you should on any cold. If, if the person says, I really think this is a cold, you know, the doctor is going to be hard-pressed to come up with a good justification for prescribing. Well, let's go back to the Food and Drug Administration. What do you think people should know about what this agency is doing and not doing? 
Well, you know, I think Sid was the person who really held their feet to the fire and held us or even me when I was there, you know, accountable. He was the person who raised the impertinent questions. He was the person who asked why you couldn't do more. Or he was the question who asked why you did what you had done. And all of those were appropriate to do. And all of those challenged the agency in ways that I think were, were healthy, even if not always welcomed by the agency. So, you know, Sid was there for, you know, I was going back and taking a look at some of the drugs we worked on together. God, it's just what a list we have. And that's just the ones that I worked on to say nothing of all of the many people who came through the health group and were trained by Sid over the years. You know, we, Botox, ERISA, hormone replacement therapy, statins, drug called Araflex, Resilin, Olistat, you know, all kinds of weight loss drugs, Viagra, you name it. I mean, Sid was involved in all of it. He had something to say about just about every major drug that ever came through. And most of the time, it was to say something like, were the data strong enough to really justify what you're saying? Were they strong enough to prove that the drug worked? Because sometimes in his view, and you know, I think often correctly, they didn't. Or were the data strong enough to not include the warning that Sid thought ought to be included? And that would be necessary and able in order for the doctors or the patients to fully understand the risk-benefit ratio for the drug. So it was all about, you know, science-based advocacy and holding the agency accountable and calling them out when he saw them making a mistake. And how is the FDA right now in terms of its leadership, in terms of its public information, in terms of getting bad or ineffective drugs off the market and well, medical devices? Well, I, I think there are some reasons for concern at the moment that a number of drugs have come on the market with rather feeble supporting evidence in recent years. I, there's been a couple of Alzheimer's drugs for which that's true, a drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy as well. And these are well publicized. Some of them are instances in which internal people at FDA recommended against approval. Others are ones in which FDA's advisors from the outside world recommended against approval. And yet the agency found a way to approve them anyway. So, you know, Sid is the person who articulated that point of view. I think in recent years, he took some roles advocating for the drugs that actually clearly are effective and clearly useful. And a couple of those were Narcan for the treatment of opioid overdose, which he and I worked a little bit on together, and I worked on a lot while at FDA. And another were, was the vaccines for, for COVID. You know, those were you know, breakthrough products, no question. And you know, Sid and I, we both actually testified before one of those FDA advisory committees on the, the COVID vaccines. And it was kind of funny to have both of us, you know, completely separate rooms, of course, during the pandemic, advocating at the same meeting. It was a, kind of an ironic and it's way a very enjoyable experience. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Peter Lurie, who is the president and executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest that puts out this wonderful newsletter, Nutrition Action, which I give as a gift to people now and then. And it sort of couples itself with the Worst Pills, Best Pills newsletter that has been produced by the Health Research Group. You can't do better than subscribe to both of those, Peter. You're supervising 65 people in the Center for Science and Public Interest, one of the largest citizen groups in Washington, D.C. Does SIDS intensity, emotional intelligence, level of evidence-based indignation have something worthwhile to have your staff dig into? 
and absorb because too often people get jaded, they get tired, they burn out. And to have an example like Sid Wolf tends to produce a resurgence, a revitalization, a self-renewal at the optimum. And isn't it worth bringing Sid's career to the attention of your own staff there and other people you know and other citizen groups? Well, certainly so. And, you know, this program will do that. No question. You know, it is remarkable what Sid accomplished with a much smaller staff than I have. Going back and looking at all the stuff that we put out, it's just how he did it. It's, It's almost... It's almost unimaginable quite how productive it all was. And, you know, one of the things that I learned from him, we did a project to put a warning label, a box warning label on the box of aspirin. Sid asserted correctly, as it turns out, that children with chickenpox or the flu who were fed or given aspirin to control their fevers were at more risk of a fairly rare but very serious condition called Rye syndrome. And he said wanted to get a box warning on it and was resisted by FDA and resisted by the industry, which created these front front groups and affected the Reagan administration such that a a warning that seemed on the cusp of happening got pulled back. And Sid was the person who fought that. And ultimately, he pushed National Academy of Sciences to do a study that proved it beyond any measure of doubt. And the warning is there. In fact, what's ended up happening is that people don't use aspirin for children very much anymore, which is, frankly, even better than a box warning. But the thing that I learned from that was that you could win. That's what I learned from Sid. I didn't think personally that you could actually win in this life. What I thought that I would do was tilted windmills, you know, for the rest of my life, fight the good fight, maybe be an honorable person, maybe my kids would appreciate it. That's all I really thought would happen. But what Sid showed me was that if you pick the right project, if you pick the project that was the right size, that involved a question that was actually being posed to a regulatory agency. And by the way, he was always more interested in the regulatory agencies and the Congress, which I think itself was an insight, especially for a science-based person like him. Now, if you picked that right size project and you brought the right data to, to bear, you actually could win. You could get that warning on the box. And if you won the first time, That told you that you could win a second and a third and a fourth time. And that is what keeps you going. That's the important element of psychological reward that people need to keep in in, in the work. If you set your sights in ways that are too expansive, you'll just lose incessantly and eventually you'll give up. But Sid understood how to get, how to find that project that was not so small that it didn't matter, but not so massive that you stood no chance of making a difference. And he found that sweet spot over and over and over again. And listeners should know that there never was over 12 full-time people at the Public Citizen Health Research Group. Yep. That's what a dozen people were able to do. I mean, the whole budget was just a fraction of what one CEO makes of a major company a year. And people should take heart from that. Also, our our listeners should know that if they're on any prescription drugs or they're taking over-the-counter medications, they can learn about whether they should be taking them, whether they're safe, whether they're effective, or whether they're designated as do not use by the Health Research Group Worst Pills, Best Pills database. And you can get access to that database that's kept up to date regularly 24-7 by just sending in $15. Go to Health Research Group at Public Citizen. You can enter it through the website citizen.org and sign up 
So whenever you have a bad side effect or a friend or relative or neighbor, you can check it out and see whether that dizziness, that nausea, that fall, that gastrointestinal bleeding or other side effects was connected to the medication that the person was taking. It's one of the best deals in the consumer world. The Worst Pills, Best Pills database. There's also a a print newsletter that you can get if you wish. What else would you like to say, Peter? Well, you know, the the one other thing I would add is, you know, we've talked a lot about Sidney's work and all of his many accomplishments and importantly, the way he changed the lives of people like myself and created new generations of activists who can in turn train more activists and so on and so forth. But Sid was, you know, this is a, it's an overused phrase and it applies to very few people to whom it is applied in in actual fact. He actually was a Renaissance man. He really was. I mean, this is a person, he worked hard as hell. I mean, you know, except for maybe you, Ralph, I don't know anybody who works, you know, harder than Sid. But at the same time, you know, he played the piano. He ran. He was, you know, I remember going on a run with him, you know, 35 years ago, which he was still sprinting 200 meters and he had me timing him. He was mad for every kind of culture that he could get, you know, his hands or ears or eyes upon, you know, be it, you know, painting, music, especially, you know, jazz, I would say maybe perhaps in particular. He just had a thirst for life, really, you know, an ability to embrace things, to try everything just a kind of breadth that you don't often find in people. And that is something rare and something that I was lucky to come into contact with. He had a zest for a full life is another way to put it. Steve? Well, actually, you just answered the question that I was going to ask you about his range of interests. So I'm going to defer to David and Hannah at this point. What is the difference between being indignant and angry? Sid has been described as indignant but not angry. What's the difference? Well, I think the word that you probably would use is outraged. That was always the word that people used. He had a column called Outrage of the Month. When we first put together the health letter, which was a kind of predecessor to Worst Pills, Best Pills, he said, we need a column called Outrage of the Month. And I remember thinking to myself, God, are we going to have to come up with something every month? You know, we'll never be able to fill that. Good God. Are you kidding me? It was a piece of cake. I mean, you know, there's never a problem. There's always something. Sid was just full of outrage all the time. And But the difference really, and the main point is, there's a difference between being angry and as a result, you know, being sort of rendered immobile. And then there's a person who takes anger and uses it as a spur to action. That's the important distinction. And Sid understood that better than anybody. Well, we could go on and on about your work with Sid on worker exposure to beryllium and other hazards in the workplace, but we're unfortunately out of time. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Lurie, who's the president and executive director of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, which has a heavy focus on food safety and food safety regulation and nutrition, among other issues that the center works on. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. It's a a pleasure to think back. It's such a sad time about all of the positive things that Sid was able to bring to this world. Stand up, stand up. We've been speaking with Dr. Peter Lurie. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com.
I want to thank our guests again, Dr. Steffi Wilhandler, Dr. David Himmelstein, Robert Weissman, and Dr. Peter Lurie. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at ralphnaderradiohour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. As we recorded this, listeners, be very alert for the possibility of a wider war in the Middle East. Israel has taken its weapons into Lebanon by drone, which analysts in this country and Israel are viewing as an escalation which could involve a broader war engaging U.S. soldiers and sailors And who knows what the repercussions will be on the world at large and our own country. We have to have a ceasefire. We have to have peace negotiations. And Joe Biden's got to put some strength in his backbone and begin to tell Netanyahu to stop trying to goad us into a wider conflict. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to The Wrap-Up. First, Steve, David, and Hannah asked Doctors Woolhandler and Himmelstein about Doctor Sid Wolf. Can we go to Steve and David, Hannah? Would you like to ask Doctors Woolhandler and Himmelstein? Doctor Himmelstein, before we went on, we were talking about Sid's sense of humor. Can you, uh, either one of you, talk about Sid and that aspect of him, and and how that helped him as a communicator? I'm not sure I know how it helped him as a communicator. I know it was a bond between Sid and me. Uh, He was, many of our phone conversations, and we talked often by phone, started with Sid saying, okay, you have a joke for me today, or me saying to him, what's the joke that you have? He was an ardent fan of Mel Brooks and sent me when the 2,000-year-old man series, which was one of Mel Brooks and Sid Caesar's comedy routines, was produced on CD. Sid sent me a copy of the CD because he knew that that I would want to hear that. He was, I guess, in the midst of one meeting with a prominent member of Congress. We kind of segued into a Mel Brooks routine because it seemed appropriate at the moment or appropriate to us, but the member of Congress thought it was slightly bizarre. But nonetheless went on to accede to what we were asking him to do. So Sid, as as Ralph has said, was a man of broad both interests, pleasures, and talents. And his sense of humor was certainly among them. A man of great love of many things. Thank you. David? Steve Scrovan took me to dinner with Sid in Washington, D.C. 
I think it was almost eight years ago. Could you talk to how he treated mere mortals like me? Let me just say, first of all, Sid was a great cook, so maybe you ate out, but if you'd eaten his cooking, you would have also eaten very well and very healthily, I would say. He paid a lot of attention to nutrition in addition to his other medical concerns. Sid was very democratic in the way that he related to other people. He treated my 17-year-old children as if they were colleagues. He treated that when he'd meet their friends, he would listen intensely and say supportive things about their own graduate studies and work. He really believed in democracy and that people are equal and that every human life has value. And he did this with such intensity and good humor that that was really inspiring too. And people love spending time with Sid. It was always a pleasure to hang out with him and he was a big talker, but also a really good listener. You know, Stephanie, you're right. He never changed his tone when he spoke with young people. He treated them like young adults. And he knew who he was. He knew where he was coming from. He knew what he wanted to do in life. When we started together the Health Research Group of Public Citizen back in 1971, we put out an announcement. That was news then. That we started a new group. And he told the reporters, this is going to be my last job. <laughs> and and they, they didn't know how to react to something like that. But he was telling them, this is what he wanted to be, a public interest physician, a physician that tried to make workplace safer, medicine safer, medical practice safer, strong, fair regulation by the FDA. And he knew right off that that was going to be what he was going to do the rest of his life. And he proved it. Hannah? I never had the pleasure of meeting him myself, so I've just been reading the tributes, and just one thing that stuck out to me is he was asked about whether or not he took vitamins, and he said, no, they're, the chemicals are made by the people we're fighting against. Why would I take vitamins? And that just jumped out to me as the most public interesty, iconic thing to say is, why would I take vitamins? They're a scam. I mean, he didn't say they're a scam, but I just... Well, one reason is he, he thought a good diet substituted for a lot of vitamins. He wasn't an absolutist on vitamins, was he, David, Stephanie? No. I don't think so, but he was an absolutist on health and facts. He was also an absolutist, as you said, Ralph, on being incorruptible and maybe symbolized for me best when the first lunch I ever had with Sid, he invited us when I was first in Washington, working with him at Public Citizen. And he said, come down for lunch and, and we'll talk over what you should be doing with us for this year. I'll provide lunch. And I arrived and there was bread and apples and water. And amidst the corporate <laughs> lobbyists in Washington, there was no opulent lunch at Public Citizen. There was the basics and nutritious basics. Now with Rob Weissman, Ralph brings up a particular pet peeve of Sid Wolf's. He was particularly incensed at OSHA and its low budget and its weak enforcement of workplace health and safety. And he was one of the first to raise the issue of the devastating effects of heat for workers, like in the heat waves in Texas recently. They're all starting to pay attention to that now. But he did that long time ago. He alerted the public about the devastation 
of overuse of antibiotics, where both patients and doctors would want an antibiotic pill, even if they had a virus-based cold for which an antibiotic doesn't work at all, doesn't work against viruses. But the side effects in terms of producing more antibiotic resistance by the germs was killing over 100,000 Americans a year. Now, where did he get that figure? Well, that figure was in some medical journals, but nobody knew about it except the few people who read medical journals. Well, he would go on national TV and reach millions with it. Unfortunately, the media is not as cooperative in the last 10, 15 years as it was earlier, but he had a great relation with the media because they trusted him. They knew how rigorous he was. Tell us how he used litigation. He used the courts as well. Yeah, for sure. He used he used every tool. You know, I would say not only did he read all those journals, and as you know, Ralph, you're painting a picture there of his desk, which is absolutely overstacked with all kinds of materials, even today. But he and his colleagues at Health Research Group also did original research. So they didn't just sort of take what was out there. They looked at the underlying data and did their own analysis of it. And that is how we were able to point to unsafe products that were up for consideration or already on the market and make independent judgments about whether they belong on the market or not. And, and exactly as you say, the reporters loved Sid because they could both trust him. He was someone who distilled all that information and he was able to express it in ways that people could understand. Now, most of the work, a lot of the work, as you say, was focused on the Worker Health and Safety Agency, OSHA. But it was primarily focused on the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which you know he wanted to be the agency it should be, but was constantly at loggerheads with because it was not. Sometimes when the agency refused to act, we were able to sue the FDA to force action. And so we partnered with the lawyers at Public Citizen and our litigation group on all kinds of lawsuits that prompted the FDA to act on specific products, but also in some other ways. For example, the FDA, when it was considering new drugs or devices, would withhold the information, the safety and efficacy information that companies gave from public consideration until immediately before there was a open hearing about whether to approve or not approve those products. And we sued and changed that process so that the information is now available earlier. And experts, our experts, but those in other nonprofits or academic institutions, also get earlier access to that information and then therefore can more meaningfully impact the decisions. So there are really countless cases of that. Sid didn't think that he was a lawyer. He was very humble about it. But over time, he developed an awful lot of deep knowledge about FDA and health law in the United States. I remember he went after a painkiller 30 years before the FDA finally took it off the market. And he called me up and he said, well, I guess persistence has something going for it. And he chuckled, but he wasn't happy that that painkiller was being taken with such terrible side effects on its unwitting patients. I've often said that one of the best deals for consumers is how they can get access 24-7 on their computer to the Health Research Group's database, which is worst pills, best pills. So when they get a prescription or when they go into a drugstore and they say, I wonder what the facts are, what the side effects, is it effective? Should it not be taken? They can just log in 24-7 
for this database. Tell our listeners how little that is costing them a year, because Sid always insisted on keeping costs down for the information that he put together. Yeah, the online subscriptions are available at worstpills.org, and it's just $15 a year. So definitely the, less than the cost of a, any individual prescription. You know, Ralph, the product you were talking about, that one that took 30 years before the FDA took it off the market, I was just an hour ago looking at a video of Sid commenting when the FDA finally acted. And it's so instructive because he didn't get up there and say, hey, this is a great victory. And we're so pleased that we made this happen, which we did. He said, this is a complete outrage that the FDA is acting now when we gave them this exact same information decades earlier and that the information was available and regulators in other countries had acted decades earlier and that one or 2,000 people died because out of the 100 million who had taken the product in that decades-long period. And so he found nothing to celebrate in it. It was just more indignation to demand that the agency do better and not give them any points whatsoever for doing what we asked when they did that so long after they should have originally acted because they, again, had strayed from their primary mission of protecting the public health. I think his major regrets probably were that we didn't get universal health care, that the onset of Medicare and Medicaid in the mid-70s didn't go all the way. And it was because the Congress thought they couldn't afford it because of the Vietnam War, another consequence of the Vietnam War on domestic morbidity and mortality levels in the United States. It doesn't get enough attention. He regretted that very little has been done on antibiotic resistance due to the overuse of antibiotics by drug company promotions and doctors. And he also regretted the overdiagnosis that goes on in medicine today because of the economic incentives that the healthcare industry makes more money by overdiagnosis. So he recognizes a lot of unfinished pursuits that he and his colleagues worked on. Now with Dr. Peter Lurie, Ralph shares more remembrances. He was very worried about the lack of congressional oversight. Yes. One of the last times I spoke to Sid, he told me that there was a committee in the Senate that had 100 hearings yep. on the FDA over time by a very diligent staffer, Ben Gordon, who lived to be 100. And there's almost nothing like that now. And with the onset of these fast-selling weight reduction drugs, the public is entitled to say, were these drugs approved too quickly without enough data on side effects? What's your counsel? to our listeners on that? Well, let me just first take the first part of that. Yes, Sid, for years, used to make the point that hearings from the early 70s under Senator Fountain, often with, with Ben Gordon, who later, by the way, became a person who worked for us at Public Citizen. I shared an office with him, a wonderful, wonderful person. And, you know, that they, they, they basically stopped. You know, the only real oversight, such as it was, had to do with why FDA wasn't approving more drugs more quickly and before they were being approved in Europe, which was, you know, a fine and interesting rhetorical point were it not for the fact that two thirds of all drugs are actually approved in this country before anywhere else in the world. So, you know, just, there was just no basis for that allegation. And Sid had pointed that out by doing a number of innovative studies over the years in which he would show that many of the drugs in those days came on the market before they did in the United States, actually wound up being removed from the market in those countries before they could ever 
affect an American consumer, kind of like what happened with thalidomide, where it was on the market in, in Europe, people were you know, badly hurt by them, uh, but it never came on the market in that case because of the diligence of FDA. With respect to your question with regard to the weight loss drugs, well, of course, those drugs were on the market in the first place for diabetes. And really, the only issue with respect to weight loss is whether or not they acquire a second indication for weight loss itself. I personally am of the view that these drugs hold promise. The degree of weight loss that they seem to offer, you know, around about 15 to 20% of people's body weight is really very substantial and vastly different than all of the weight loss drugs that Sid and I worked on for all those years and really try to get off the market. The Olastats, the Meridias, all of those were drugs that barely resulted in any weight loss and at the same time had these terrible side effects. And so, you know, Sid was very often someone speaking out about those drugs inappropriately. Personally, I'm of the view that these new drugs do have a significant promise. And in fact, they're now being shown to not only result in weight loss, but to have actual benefits upon what we would call hard outcomes, like heart attacks and strokes, quality of life. So time will tell. There's more testing is absolutely necessary. They're hopelessly overpriced. That means that some of the people who need them most will never be able to benefit from them. But in the end, I'm hopeful that there might these might actually be helpful, very different from their predecessors. Hannah? My question is about getting useless meds off the market. You mentioned thalidomide, and there's been a lot of coverage recently about cold medicine, like one of the, is it, I'm going to mess up the name, phenyl. Phenyl effort. Mm -hmm. Yep. What you said, being completely useless and the other common ingredient in a lot of cold medicine is pseudoephedrine, which is, was found to be dangerous after it was already on the market for people with some conditions. Are there any other, I just, it's one of the rare instances of a drug like that actually getting called out publicly by name. Are there any other, you want to name any other names? Well, you know, the two that you've mentioned are in the category of over-the-counter drugs. And that's an especially interesting category because almost nobody pays attention to them for a couple of reasons. One is that the regulatory system in over-the-counter drugs has been completely gummed up by having an inordinately complicated way of being able to add or remove products from the market. And it's just been reformed about two years ago. Congress passed a law that allowed FDA to take products off the market with an administrative action as opposed to a complete regulatory action with notice and comment. And that's the reason that phenylephrine came off the market. What you're hearing is the sound of the gears at FDA becoming ungummed. And the first of those is phenylephrine. Now, if you were to ask me, where would I go to know which uh, over-the-counter drugs shouldn't be purchased? That has a simple answer. You would try to find a copy of Sid Wolf's 1984 over-the-counter pills that don't work book. I got one in my office and I use it because there they went through all of the drugs currently on the market in over-the-counter and rated all of them for efficacy or inefficacy, safety or lack of safety, and so forth. And Public Citizen even filed the lawsuit trying to force them to speed up the process of rating these drugs and removing the products from the market, which I believe we lost. And then the system eventually required legislative reform, you know, three decades later. So, you know, there are a number of other drugs there. I think others that come to mind for me are some of these cough suppressants, 
and so-called expectorants like guaifenesin, like dextromethorphine. Those are a couple of others. And with any luck, the fact that it's now become easier for FDA to act on these means that we'll be hearing, in effect, more bad news, more news about products that don't work and really ought to be removed from the market because they're not doing people any good. And in so doing, they create side effects. And now a final word from Ralph. He deserves front page placement for his obituaries. The Washington Post, the New York Times, and others have written a obituary of his life. But if we had a civic society worthy of its name, he would be prominently on the evening news reporting his passing. But his colleagues will keep his legacy going with all kinds of ways, not just the works of the public citizen health research group. We hope that some documentarians and writers will be interested in chronicling the life of Dr. Sidney Wolf, Director of Public Citizens Health Research Group, and his tumultuous times that he tried to make sense and justice from day after day. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way.